being disabled is a challenge. There's no question about it. But here's the thing. How many people get to spend their life seeing the absolute warmth and best in people? From when I wake up in the morning until when I go to sleep at night, all I do is get to see literally the best in people. I'm Rachel Krause, and we are here to explore and unpack the essence, architecture, and DNA of purpose across industries, professions, relationships, and even within paradox. On this podcast, we will uncover the stories and journeys of our guests, unlocking pathways to grow, to gain, and to give. This is Listen on Purpose from Kindred Media. For this episode, I talked with Justice Richard Birdstein, the first blind justice elected to the Michigan Supreme Court. Justice Bernstein shares his insights on adversity and how through his struggle, he found hope, faith, and purpose. Justice Bernstein, having known you for so many years, you are, to me, a person that embodies and personifies living with intention and living with purpose. I've seen it in your casual conversations, certainly in your professional life, and I'm sure we'll get into this in your athletic expressions, whether it's Ironman or marathons. And uh, this is certainly something that has deeply inspired me, and I know thousands and thousands of others who've had the pleasure to meet you. Can you share a little bit about what this means to you at living and operating in a way that's driven by purpose and intention? For me, I am a very spiritual person, and I have a strong degree of faith. And I believe that we're all sent here for a mission and we're all sent here for a purpose. And I think what it's interesting about this eternal question that I've always tried to answer as I've kind of gone through my life, which is why is it that there are some people that have a greater struggle or greater hardship or greater difficulty in life than others? People ask, so what are the qualities that go into being a good Supreme Court justice? You know, people will often say, oh, if you want to be a good judge, it's all about your academics or your intellectualism or your ability to research and to write and to publish. And it's all about that. And what I have come to find is that none of those things really matter. None of those things are really relevant. The one thing that God gives us that I believe he gives to us for a purpose is our life experiences, because it's through our life experiences that we're able to understand and appreciate the concept of struggle. So I think when you ask that essence of purpose, you can't have purpose without struggle. If you're able to live with that sense of purpose that arises from struggle, then what ultimately happens is your life has a really heightened degree of meaning that I think gives you that essence and that joy that comes out of making sure that from each day you've done something with it that matters and that's relevant and that's impactful. So often the people that we know who have the hardest or most difficult of lives are the ones who wind up doing the most with it. And I've really come to believe that God gives us certain struggles or he gives us certain hardships or he gives us certain difficulties because he wants us to take from that and really do something that matters, that's impactful, 
that's going to have an effect on people's lives in a powerful, positive, and constructive way. If you're asking yourself, how do I get through another situation where I'm getting bullied or made fun of, or I'm made to feel as though I don't fit in, or I'm made to feel as I don't belong, how do I deal with this? I have to say this to you. I truly believe that you are the chosen. It's really up to you because now that you have this wisdom and now that you have this compassion, now that you have this heightened awareness that comes through your sense of struggle, you have to use it to do something meaningful and great because you possess the wisdom that allows for that to happen. Wow. Justice Bernstein, thank you so much for sharing that and imparting such extraordinary pearls of wisdom for all of our listeners. And Justice Bernstein, you, I believe, are the first ever blind Supreme Court justice. That's right. Here in Michigan, we're elected to this position. So the entire state votes for who's going to serve on the high court. And as a blind person, if I had to go through what they would call a merit selection committee, if I had to go and get interviewed by a committee who would ultimately decide who could serve as a judge, they would never have given me this opportunity. If I had sat in front of a panel of people and explained to them why I should be a Supreme Court justice, they would never provide me this opportunity. They would never think it's possible. What would happen at the meeting is they would say, wow, you are so inspirational and wow, that's so exciting or that's so novel. And then after you leave the room, they would basically say, but you know, he can't do this job. This isn't going to work for us. Let's go with someone that we know. Let's go with someone who's like us, who acts like us, who performs like us. Let's just go with the safe candidate. Why go with the blind guy? It's just going to be too difficult. The beautiful thing here in Michigan is, is that we're elected because it was done through an electoral process. And because the people of the state got to decide, they were willing to give someone like me a chance because I was able to connect with them because we both understood that concept of struggle, that concept of hardship, that concept of challenge, that concept of difficulty. And I think the fact that in Michigan, the decision is made by the people and not by a merit selection committee allows for the people to connect and understand and appreciate that concept of struggle and allows for you to connect with folks because struggle is a unifying factor that we all know, experience, and have to endure. Absolutely. I actually recall you once, Justice Bernstein, saying that because you were born blind, it almost affords you the opportunity to see the best in people because all you do is experience the energy of people. Correct. I mean, look, being disabled is a challenge. There's no question about it. But here's the thing. How many people get to spend their life seeing the absolute warmth and best in people. From when I wake up in the morning until when I go to sleep at night, all I do is get to see literally the best in people. Because when you're blind, what happens is, is that people will always approach you and they'll always ask, do you need assistance? Do you need help? Is there anything that I can do? And so for me, the fact that I can't live in a world of isolation, in order for me to survive, I have to always be with people. I have to be around people. There's no way that a blind person 
is able to survive and get through the day if they're not able to connect with people, if they're not able to rely on people. If you don't have that relationship with people and they don't have that relationship with you, then there's no way I can actually live in this world. So the beauty of it is, is that it requires you to have to constantly interact with people at all times because people want to help. They want to be close to you and they want to make sure that you're safe and that nothing happens. So how often does a person get to spend their entire day seeing warmth and kindness and compassion and having an opportunity to, for all intents purposes, literally see nothing but the absolute best in all people? It's amazing and such an extraordinary lesson to internalize and to live by that whether a person has a condition or not to live a life where there is proximity, physical proximity, emotional proximity, and warmth, both the physical warmth and the emotional warmth that you gain from being around and close to people who care and who want to help. My entire life is people. The entire way I interact with the world is through people. Everything I do is through people. And so it's really not a bad way to live and it's not a bad way to experience life. An extraordinary way to think about operating for anybody to be able to operate with that level of awareness and attuned to the human condition, to be close. Yes. You just love people. I mean, it's a yeah. great way to be able to live. I just love people. I have to confess, I really <laughs> like people. I mean, that's just my thing. Anything to do with people, anything that connects you to people, I just have a tremendous affinity towards. Can you share a little bit about your experience in the world of athletics and running, what running does for you. And I dare to say, how many marathons is it, Justice Bernstein? <laughs> I've been blessed to have completed 25 marathons and a full Ironman competition. It kind of goes back to a spiritual connection that I have, which is I just always believe the spirit is looking to be closer to the creator. And for me, the way that I have a connection is through endurance competitions. When you do... 25 marathons, you have to have a strong sense of faith because you have to basically believe in people because you're relying on people to get you through the experience. You're relying on people to allow for you to navigate this in a safe manner. And you have to be focused the entire time because what they're saying to you is you're on a tether and your guide is going to say to you, okay, hard right, soft right, hard left, soft left. And you have to follow those directional cues implicitly. If your guide says to you, hard right, and you don't move hard right, then you're going to get injured. So you've got to follow those directions. And then you also have to feel the motion of your guide. So as your guide is running, you're actually feeling the motion of their body and you can feel what their body is doing. And that's how you know what direction you need to go in because you can sense kind of what their body is doing through the energy their body has. Now that's the, the typical marathon that you've got to be focused for the entire time and you can't miss a beat because if you do, it's going to come at your own peril. But the Ironman is an entirely different thing because for those who are not familiar, an Ironman is a 2.4 mile swim followed by a 112-mile bike to be completed by a 26.2-mile run. Now, the rules are quite simple. If you stop, if you rest, if you take a break, you run the risk of missing a cutoff. If you miss a cutoff, 
you're going to be immediately disqualified from the competition. If you finish at 12.05 instead of 12 o'clock, it's like you were never even there. Two years of effort, work, and training will literally be for nothing. Picture the feeling you would have as you dive into a frigid body of water. Now, the water temperature that morning of Lake Coeur d'Alene was 55 degrees. I want you to imagine what it's like to swim in total darkness. You don't have any idea where you started. You don't have any idea where you're going. And you don't have any idea where you are. Now, you're the only disabled competitor in the entire competition. And being blind, you can't brace for the ensuing impact. So as you swim, you're on a lasso that's around your waist, around your guide's waist, and he's going to tug at you so you know which way to go. But you can't brace for the ensuing impact that comes from all the other swimmers. As they swim, they will kick you over and over again in the face. Not intentionally. It's just the nature of the competition. But when you're blind, you can't brace for the impact. And The biggest challenge happens when you try to surface, but you can't because there's other people immediately above you. And lastly, other swimmers become entangled and ensnared in the rope that connects you to your guide. And as they become entangled, the rope becomes constrictive. And as the rope constricts, it starts taking you below the surface. It makes it impossible to get oxygen And when you can't get oxygen, you start to drown. For me, athleticism is a form of spirituality. It's spiritual in this regard, because what happens when you're tired, when you're scared, when you don't know what the outcome is going to be, the beauty of endurance competitions is that you're able to sense and experience firsthand the mortality of the flesh, and you're able to see the infirmities of the body. But what ultimately happens when you're in that situation is you're able to see that the spirit is able to disconnect from the body. And by doing so, the spirit is able to do nothing less than pierce the heavens and touch the face of God. And the reason that that is so powerful to me is because it allows for you to realize that even though you have a severe disability, like I do, that even though the body is mortal, the spirit is all-powerful, and that if given the opportunity, the spirit can guide the body. That's why I do my athletics, because it really is the ability to allow for the spirit to transform the body. I've basically lived my entire life by the nature of resilience. And it's interesting, because the greatest lesson that I think comes out of all of this is, especially for so many people who are dealing with some really difficult times, is is that there's going to be some setbacks, there's going to be loss, there's going to be frustration. And what people tend to do is try to kind of mitigate it. They'll come to you and they'll say things like this, oh, you know, I know you're going to make a full recovery. Or, oh, I hope or I know that you are going to find closure. It's incredibly insulting to people who are going through real trauma to tell them that they're going to find closure. But really where the strength comes is learning how to adapt. Adapting to a new circumstance, a new situation, or most importantly, learning how to adapt to a life that you don't want, but a life that you have been given. 
if you're able to learn and really focus on how to adapt, you can live fuller. And that's what athletics teaches you. The 25 marathons, the Ironman, it teaches you that notion that you can find a way to adapt to these unique struggles or unique circumstances that, you know, can be all powerful if given the chance. You know, one of the setbacks that I had that I'll share, I was walking in Central Park and I love walking in Central Park and I've committed the loop to memory. So I'm able to walk the loop and internalize it so I can walk without an escort, without a guide. As I was walking, there was a bicyclist and he was going over 35 miles an hour. And when he hit the top of the park's biggest hill, he lost control. And in doing so, he veered into the pedestrian lane where I was walking and he struck me directly in the back. And it was a 35 mile an hour impact. And the injury was catastrophic. This was 10 weeks of hospitalization at New York's Mount Sinai Hospital. What you learn from that when you're in the hospital for 10 weeks and you are facing pain, the likes of which you have never experienced. And all of those little things that you used to love doing for yourself that you took for granted, like using the bathroom or taking a shower or having the chance to turn at night without having to be positioned by a nurse or being able to sleep through the night without having to arrive in like this indescribable level of pain, you realize that life is really not about the big things. So often we sit here, we talk about policy, we talk about politics, we talk about all those things, but none of those things really matter. It's the little things that give life its essence and give it its quality. And in my situation, I just remember fighting for those small things and fighting just to move my leg and fighting just to kind of start moving my body, having to learn how to walk again and having to do all these things over again while facing this unbelievable, intense level of pain. When I came out of the hospital, it was really interesting. My injury is so catastrophic that my body will never really be the same, but it was time for the New York City Marathon. And I remember I said, okay, this is going to be my 18th marathon, but it'll be the first after like a catastrophic injury. And as we ran through the streets of New York, I remember getting to the 59th Street Bridge And getting onto First Avenue at mile 18, and I remember the pain was becoming so severe and so intense. I mean, I've never felt pain like that in my life. And I just remember reaching up to the heavens, let me please, let me have this. Let me cross the finish line. Because if you allow me to have this, I will be able to move forward. I will be able to adapt. I will be able to start living my life again, even with the new limitations. Right at mile 18, you could feel this intense battle that was raging. And I kid you not, you could sense the wind. You could feel it. You could feel the lightning and you could hear the thunder and you could feel this absolute battle, battle that was just raging because the person who was born blind, who had worked hard his entire life, who used athletics 
as a way to cope with blindness, to be the kind of person I was, to be a person of strength, to be a person of character, but to be a person who was independent and to use athletics to have that power. That was my identity. I was an athlete. That was my thing. And to rob me of that after using athletics to overcome so much and to take that away in a catastrophic accident, I was just thinking was unforgivable right at that moment where the battle was raging, I was able to find that which is what I had always been looking for, that which I believe all of us are seeking. I was able to make peace with my new body. I was able to make peace with my new circumstance. I was able to make peace with my new life. And I think once you're able to make your peace and find your peace and understand your purpose, But most importantly, try to do something with it. I really believe that in the end, it all seems to find its way to working out. Wow. And the way you're able to depict this struggle really illustrates such a profound experience that I'm sure many can relate to based on what you're describing and I'm sure can turn inward and find similar elevations of that kind of intensity with different experiences that happen in life. What's interesting, Justice Bernstein, that I'm hearing a common thread. You talked about the little stuff and appreciating what it was during those 10 weeks and to to have a sense of what it was to move a leg. And it seems to be that those same small things, as you call them, are also what you described as the human interactions when somebody wants to help and they'll put their arm on you and engage in close proximity. It's those small little spaces that actually drive magic and drive that sense of purpose around human exchange and our ability to adapt and to be resilient. It is in the small stuff. I ardently believe that. It's always about those small things. For people with disabilities, that's what we dream about. It's the ability to have a job or the ability to go to school or the ability to be integrated, or the ability to have a purpose, or the ability to have friends. That's really what it comes down to. It's those things that go into life that really give life its real value and real meaning are never big, but it's always the small. Always the small. And that's how it works, right? Yeah. And, you know, like, so for example, like, how does it work as a judge? People with disabilities, we have to work so much harder than everybody else. Nothing comes to us easy. And yet we just go out there and we do it. And we just keep pushing and keep going because we simply have no other alternative and we simply have no other choice but to literally do it. That's just how we are. And it's funny because even in this position that I'm in is people will sometimes ask, you know, okay, so you're a Supreme Court justice. How does that work as like a blind person? You know, how do you do your job? as a Supreme Court justice. When I was in law school, I went to Northwestern and every day when I was in school was a consummate struggle. If it took you an hour to do something, it took me five hours to do the exact same thing. I remember getting my grades and just being so disappointed because I had worked so hard and yet did so poorly. And I remember saying a prayer to God and I said, I don't know if I'm going to make it through this. This is just getting too hard. Every day I'm the bottom of the class. No matter what I do, I can't seem to get anywhere. And I said, look, I'm going to make you a deal. I really want this. And if you give me the opportunity to become an attorney, then I will dedicate my entire professional career 
to representing people with disabilities and people with special needs who otherwise can't afford legal representation. If you give me the chance to graduate from law school and pass the bar exam, then I will make it my life's work to enhance and make life better for folks with disabilities and special needs. This will become my life's work. And so Hashem basically was incredibly kind and merciful and gracious and wonderful and basically allowed for me to graduate from law school and allowed for me to pass the bar. And I went back to my family law firm and I said to my dad and to my brother and my sister, I said, look, a deal is a deal. A promise is a promise. I realize that you're going to think this is crazy, but I made this promise that if I got to be a lawyer, I would dedicate my professional career to representing people with disabilities on a pro bono basis. And a promise is a promise. So we're going to start up a public services division. It's going to cost us hundreds of thousands of dollars. We're not going to make a dime, but we're going to represent folks who otherwise don't have anywhere else to turn. And that's what we did. And it was myself and I had two amazing associates and we basically took cases that nobody else would take. It was really something like we would fight with cities. We fought with the airline industry. These were the most David versus Goliath struggles that have probably ever been heard tale of. These were battles. I mean, I had a fight with the mayor of Detroit where they were operating buses with 60% of the fleet had broken wheelchair lifts. I represented paralyzed veterans and they were getting stuck in bus transfers and being left all night at bus transfers because 60% of the fleet had broken wheelchair lifts. So they passed by them and not picked them up. I sued the city and basically fought with the city for over seven years to get them to modify the transit system so that people with disabilities could have access to the bus lines. What ultimately happened was what came out of that case was for all fixed route systems throughout the United States, there is now a precedent in place that basically creates the requirements for all public transit providers to be fully accessible for all people to use and have access. Wow. One of the hardest cases I had was I used to be a professor at the University of Michigan and I loved teaching at University of Michigan, but I wound up suing the University of Michigan because the football stadium was inaccessible and they were spending over $300 million to make all these adaptations to the stadium, bringing skyboxes and all these kinds of things. And they were spending over $300 million, but they wouldn't make it accessible so that everyone could use it and everyone could enjoy it. It went on for years to get them to rebuild the stadium so that basically you could make it accessible, but they did. And over time, they they did what was right. And through working through the courts, now it's the most accessible facility probably in the country. And that set all the guidelines and standards for what it means to have an alteration versus a repair and what that means for all commercial facilities. This is why I'm kind of spiritual, which is I made this promise that if I was given the chance to be a lawyer, that I would dedicate my life to this. And then all these things have kind of fallen into place. And I think sometimes if you operate with a certain degree of faith and you put yourself out there, miracles will happen and good things will usually take place when you least expect it. Wow. Thank you so much. One of the gifts that we like to give our listeners is a swag bag. And the swag that I'm hearing from you and a gift to impart is to take lesson from those points of struggle and to use that and to build on that to catalyze empathy, to catalyze connection, 
and to allow that to be a driving source of purpose and that that person walks around blessed to be able to bring their challenge, to bring it forth to a place of possibility for them and for others. Exactly. You could not have summed it up better. Justice Bernstein, what a privilege to have you here as a guest. It's just such a gift to have time with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. And God bless you and your audience. Listen on Purpose is a series as part of Kindred Cast from Kindred Media and Audiation. The show is produced by Ireland Meacham and mixed by Matt Noble with music by my nine-year-old son, Noam Krauss. If you like this episode, please make sure to subscribe to Kindred Cast wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review letting us know what you think. I'm your host, Rachel Krauss. Thank you for listening.